Good morning. Great to see everyone. We are, as many of you already know, we're doing a series currently, and the series is entitled uh, Jesus Encounters, and we're looking at a number of different um, incidents uh, throughout the scriptures where Jesus had you know, personal encounters with different people, and we're, we're looking at those encounters and then seeing their relevance to us today and the kind of encounters that we might have uh, as well with the Lord today. So we come today to looking at this uh, interesting situation where John tells us that certain Greeks came uh, inquiring, wanting to know if they could have a meeting with Jesus. And so the, I've entitled the message today, Jesus and the Seekers. And that's really what we see here with this um, delegation that's come to him. We, we see uh, an example of uh, people who, who come as, as seekers. So we're gonna look at it from that standpoint today. I want to just first of all say uh, that regarding this story, John is the only one of the gospel writers who records this story. And the significance of that is, I think, connected to the fact that John throughout his gospel uh, seems to always be reminding us of the universal nature of the salvation of Christ. Um, John wrote his gospel after the other three uh, gospels had already been written. Nobody knows exactly how much time uh, transpired between uh, those other three and John, but almost everybody agrees that John wrote his later. And uh, John obviously knew the content of those other gospels, and some, there's some overlap between those gospels and John's gospel, but John, it, it's like he really specifically wanted to get a universal message out. And he wanted everybody to understand that Jesus wasn't only the Messiah of Israel, the savior of the Jewish people, that Jesus is indeed the savior of the world. And one writer wrote this in regard to the Greeks coming. He said, the fact that the Greeks had reached the point of wanting to meet Jesus showed that the time had come for him to die for the world. He no longer belongs to Judaism, which in any case had rejected him, but the world whose savior he is awaits him and seeks him. And that's what we see as we see these Greeks coming to him. So, so these men that, that John identifies as Greeks come to him. Now, it's interesting that John identifies them as Greeks. Um, and, and that, I think, tells us something about them that might not be obvious on the surface. They could have been um, proselytes. A, a proselyte is a, a convert. So they could have been people who were Greeks uh, culturally and religiously who converted and became uh, Jews. And now they're participating, they're, they're attending the festival and so forth, and, and they're looking for Jesus. They could have been proselytes, but they probably weren't, having said all of that. Um, and the reason I doubt that they were proselytes is because I think uh, John would have 
either clarified that or he might not have even told the story because uh, proselytes were fairly common. There were people that converted from uh, Greek religion, Roman religion, uh, other religions to Judaism. Uh, some others say, well, they were probably God-fearers. And a God-fearer was in a different category than a proselyte. A proselyte was a full c- a convert. Uh, a God-fearer was a person who, who acknowledged the one true God of Israel as being the Lord, but didn't want to go all the way to the point of conversion. Conversion, remember, in those days for the males included uh, circumcision. And so they would stop short of that. So they were happy to sort of believe in the God of Israel from a, from a bit of a distance, a, a genuine belief, but nevertheless, they didn't make the, the transition all the way over to a convert. Or the third possibility, and John referring to them as Greeks, and this is what I think is actually happening. The third is the possibility that they were simply seekers. And the reason why I think this is probably the case is twofold. Number one, it's because this was, this was very much uh, the, the behavior of the Greeks. And secondly, uh, Jesus does not give them the audience that they're seeking. And for that reason, it seems to me that they were maybe, they're more out of curiosity than anything. Now, this was part of the, almost like the DNA of, of the Greeks. Um, one writer put it this way, William Barclay, he said, the Greek was the inveterate wanderer, driven by wanderlust and the desire to find out new things. You Athenians, said one of the ancients, will never rest yourselves, nor will you let anyone else rest. Barclay goes on to say, more than 500 years before this, Herodotus, Herodotus was a Greek historian, had traveled the world, as he said himself, to find out things. So the Greeks were known as, as being uh, you know, inquisitive-minded people. And so oftentimes they were, they were out just to find out new things, but they were also seekers after what, what they would have considered to be truth. So the Greek was not just a wanderer. Uh, he was characteristically a seeker of the truth, Barclay says. He says, it was not unusual to find a Greek who had passed through philosophy after philosophy, religion after religion, and gone from teacher to teacher in search of the truth. The Greek was the man with the seeking mind. So I think that these Greeks that came to see Jesus were, were really just that more than anything else. They were just out to find out some new things and they had heard about Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean that they, when it says they're Greeks, it doesn't mean that they actually came from Greece, although it might mean that. Um, there were, Greek culture had pretty much dominated the region, even the, the land of Israel. And there were 10 Greek cities in the northern part of the land of Israel that had been established back actually in the Greek period. So they, they might have come from there, but they were, they were very much Greeks. And, and again, according to their kind of personality, they were seekers. So 
I want to look at the request of the Greeks, and then I want to look at the response of Jesus to them. So here's the request. Sirs, we want to meet with Jesus. So what they were asking is they were asking for a private meeting with Jesus. They, they wanted to sit down and have a conversation with him. And just, a, it's an interesting bit of a side note. It says in verse 21, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip then came and he told Andrew. Now, they probably approached Philip because they, they recognized that Philip was one of the close followers of Jesus. He was one of the apostles, but he had a Greek name. And so they figured, well, if we're going to get in to talk to Jesus, let's go to the Greek guy, or at least the guy who's identifying with Greek culture with the Greek name, and maybe he can help us. Uh, Andrew is also a Greek name. Andrew is the brother of Peter. Peter's given name, his birth name was Simon, which is a Hebrew name, uh, but his brother has this, this Greek name. So that kind of gives you an idea of how uh, much the Greek culture influenced even the Hebrews there. So they come and they're, they're looking for an audience with Jesus. They, they want to, probably the idea is that they wanted to sit down and listen to his philosophy. They wanted to, you know, hear what he thought about things. You know, maybe, maybe they wanted to follow him in, after an interview. Maybe they would decide, well, yeah, Jesus seems like a, a pretty good, knowledgeable, wise teacher. Maybe we will follow him. So that's what happened there with the request. But then the response of Jesus to them is very interesting. This is where the story, I think, gets very interesting because he doesn't really directly respond to them. He doesn't give them the audience that they're seeking. And initially, he doesn't even seem to acknowledge their request, but then he actually does answer their request. And so we'll look at that now. So in verse 23, Jesus answered them. They, they came and they told him, uh, you know, that they these Greeks wanted to see him. He answered them saying, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. So it's almost, you know, you could imagine being Philip and Andrew. They come and they say, Lord, uh, these Greeks are here and they, they want to see you. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. What does that mean? How, do, how does that correspond to what they were asking? Well, in a sense it didn't, but in another sense it did. This idea of the hour coming this is something that, again, is exclusive to John's gospel. John records Jesus referring to this hour several times in his gospel. And when Jesus refers to this hour, he's referring to the specific time of his offering himself up as a sacrifice. This is the reason, the primary reason for which he has come into the world. So this is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And how is that going to happen? The next verse tells us. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus is speaking, this 24th verse, Jesus is talking about himself. This is what he is about to do. Just like a grain must... Uh, um, 
of wheat must fall into the ground and it must die before it can bring forth a crop? Jesus is saying that that is what must happen to me. Now, remember that Jesus, his public ministry over these three years was pretty much exclusively to the, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He said that at a certain point. He said, I have not been sent to any, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So these people are from outside of Israel. But here in this 24th verse, Jesus is hinting at the fact that there's going to be an extension. There's going to be um, much fruit as a result of the grain falling into the ground and dying. And of course, he's speaking of what is going to happen to him. He is going to die. And as a result, he's going to bring life to many. So that's the answer that he initially gives them. But the answer is really, he's telling them what is about to happen. But then in the next verse, he does give an indirect answer to the Greeks, but he gives the answer really to all seekers. So this is where we see it goes beyond them and it comes to anyone who is a seeker. And what is the answer? The answer is this. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, again, that's a bit of a strange answer, right? They want to have a meeting with Jesus. Jesus said, he who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What is he saying? Well, the message of Jesus is, first of all, this. The answer is not in finding yourself. That, that's what Jesus is saying. The first thing that we need to know when it comes to uh, discovering the truth or finding out what ultimate reality is, the first thing we need to know is we're not going to find it inside of ourselves. Now, this, of course, would fly right in the face of what the Greeks would have thought, being the humanists that they were. Now, we today in our current culture, all throughout Western culture, we most people would consider our culture to be a humanistic culture, a humanist culture. And the, the essence of humanism is really that man is the measure. And that man through reason, man through his own efforts, man through uh, self-discovery can answer all the questions of life and fix all of the woes in the world and so forth. That, that's you know, pretty much the essence of humanism. Jesus says right up front that that is not the answer. He who loves his life will lose it. So that's something that I think many people need to be reminded of today. The culture today says basically this. It's all about you, what you think, and what you feel. And in the end, that's all that really matters. And what life is about for many is loving yourself, expressing yourself, being yourself. And, and we've come to a point with this philosophy that it is now becoming a part of our legal system 
that a person's right to self-expression, a person's right to their self-love and, and all of these things, that these are now uh, like civil rights and that you have a, a legal right to just, you know, ultimately be whoever you think you are and everybody else has to just accept that regardless of what, of what the facts might be. So this is the, the crazy place that the, the culture has come to, but as is always the case, the message of Jesus is radically different on what life is all about. And the message of Jesus is always gonna be pushing against the message that the world is offering. And we see that today, don't we? We see that the message of Jesus is pushing against that mentality in the culture that essentially uh, deifies self. So Jesus has a completely different way for men and women to discover the real purpose and joy of living. And it is not by loving your life, but by hating your life. Wow, that is a, a radical difference. Now, let's talk about those two things because Jesus here talks about losing your life ultimately, which is obviously a negative thing, and or keeping your life ultimately. Now, when Jesus says, if you love your life, you'll lose it. What, what does he mean by love your life? Well, this is what he means. He means to hold on to your perceived autonomy or independence, to hold on to your self-righteousness or self-sufficiency or self-determination or self-glory, to hold to that tenaciously, to, to say this is what life is, Jesus says, if that's the way you live life, if that's the way you think, you will lose your life in the end. In other words, everything will be taken from you. There will be nothing left. Now, but again, isn't this what the world tells us? The world says, no, you know, love yourself and have confidence in your own self-righteousness and your own self-sufficiency. And you just, you know, you determine your destiny and those, those kinds of things. So it's basically... The, the mentality of the world that Jesus is saying will, in the end, cause you to lose everything. So he who loves his life or she who loves her life will, in the end, lose it. But they who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, what does it mean to hate your life? And it's important that we know exactly what this means and what it doesn't mean because there's been confusion uh, over the years. Even within the church, there's been confusion. Uh, people have thought, well, you know, the Bible says you're supposed to hate your life. So that means that you are to put forth uh, an effort to make your ex living experience here on earth as miserable as possible. Seriously, this is what people have thought. This is uh, the mentality behind the, the monasteries and things like that, where you are actually going to put yourself in a place where you are miserable. You are going to uh, abstain from any kind of comfort or any kind of pleasure. And in doing so, you're going to show God how sincere you are and you're going to 
ultimately win his favor through that. That's what some people have thought. That is not what Jesus was talking about. He doesn't mean that at all. When Jesus says, if you hate your life, you will keep it, he simply means that you have given over the rule of your life to him to live for his will and purposes rather than living for your will and purposes. That's what it means. So the person who hates their life is a person who said, you know what? I am not going to live for myself. I'm not going to live for my own glory or for my own fulfillment. I am now surrendering my life to Christ. I'm going to live for him. That's the distinction that he's making. Now, in another place, Jesus said this same kind of thing in different context. But maybe you remember in Luke chapter 14, Jesus said, if anyone will be my disciple and does not hate his father, mother, sister, brother, husband, wife, children, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Or if anyone come after me and does not do this, he cannot be my disciple. Again, people have thought, oh my gosh, what is Jesus saying? He's saying we're supposed to hate our parents and our children. And well, no, obviously not in the sense that we might automatically think because of course the Bible tells us many times over that we are supposed to love even our enemies. But he's using the word comparatively. And what he's saying is our determination and our commitment to following him should be so far above and beyond our commitment to our own ideas or people that would require our allegiance. It should be so far beyond that that it looks like uh, hatred of those things in comparison. So he's using it in a comparative way. And so Jesus is saying here again, that if we try to save our lives, if we, and that, that's the way he puts it in another place. If, if you save your life, you'll lose it. If you say, no, my life is my life. God has no place in my life. He has no right over me, has no claim on me. I'm here to do my own thing. That's the person that loses in the end. But the person who says, no, actually, my life is a gift from God. My life is really to be offered up to him for his will and his purpose. That's the person who keeps their life to eternal life. Now, Jesus then goes on. And he says in verse 26, if anyone serves me, and the idea here is, again, if anyone will serve me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, that's what he's talking about here, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Here's how we know if we're serving Christ, we are where he is. And then he says this, if anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So once again, he's, he's laying out uh, the kind of the cost of being a true uh, disciple. He says that we must follow him. And of course, as you continue to read on, where is he going? He says, I'm going to be lifted up. If any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, coming back around to where we started with these Greeks. 
Sirs, we would meet Jesus, they said. Here's the question. Were these Greeks really seekers of truth? Or perhaps were they just curious? I think, based upon the response of Jesus, that you could build a case that they were more curious than anything else. That they were interested in Jesus as a teacher, perhaps, as a philosopher, a sage, as someone who could help them improve their lives a bit. I think really in the end, that's what's implied in the, the fact that Greeks came to Jesus. They, they were like their fellow countrymen, these particular ones. They were curious about Jesus. And they were wondering if Jesus could help them. If he could be of some benefit to them. If they, through following his teaching, could improve their lives. If they, if they through coming under his philosophy, could uh, enhance their, their wisdom. If they, through giving heed to his counsel, could find uh, a more successful path in life. I think that's really what was behind their request. Therefore, Jesus didn't have that meeting with them, but he did indirectly tell them and us as well that we do not meet with him on those grounds. That's what they learned. They could not meet with him on those grounds. You see, he will not be your teacher. He will not be your counselor. He will not be your guide unless he is first of all your Lord. And this is the mistake that people are still making today. People want to come to Jesus because they see him as a means of improving their situation, whatever it might be. But you can't come to him on those grounds. Now, let me be clear. He certainly will improve your situation, but that cannot be the basis upon which you come to him. You have to come to him for who he is. And you have to receive him on his grounds, not on our grounds. Now, I cannot tell you the numbers of people that I have had personal conversations with over the years who have come looking to Jesus, kind of like these Greeks, seeking him, and they're, they're basically looking for help. Their marriage is finally falling apart completely. They've been doing their best to destroy it for decades, but now it's, you know, it's come to the point of no return. So they come and they say, can Jesus help me put my marriage back together? And you know what I always tell those people? Well, he can, but he might not, because that's not really the issue. The real issue is you and Jesus coming to terms. And then we can talk about your marriage and, and perhaps, you know, there will be a restoration, but maybe not. Maybe you, maybe you have just uh, 
irreversibly ruin the situation. But that doesn't change the need for you to know Christ. So this is the thing, especially in our day where Jesus is, again, oftentimes seen as an addition to other things that is going to contribute to uh, self-improvement. It's going to contribute to a more successful life. Jesus will not play that game. He will not participate with that. He will not meet with you or me or anyone else on those terms. We meet with him on his terms. And his terms are, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross and follow me. Those are his terms. Now, there are really, as we come back around just to the idea of seekers, you know, there are two kinds of seekers. There are two kinds of seekers. There are those who are primarily interested in the adventure of seeking. Have have you ever noticed how even like, when a person would even communicate the idea that they're, you know, they're, they're like a seeker, you know, they're on a quest. Have you ever noticed how that's kind of, it's just people accept that. People kind of think, wow, you know, they're a seeker. And, and even, you know, in some sense, it's like, man, that, you know, that's a really cool guy. You know, he's just seeking. He's just, you know, but have you ever also noticed that you're okay as long as you're a seeker, but just don't ever try to insinuate that you found anything, anything absolute, <laughs> especially if, you're, if your seeking led you to Jesus. It's like, no, no, we don't want to hear about that, that part of it. But you know, to be a seeker, it's, it's, it's okay. It's kind of cool. And there are people who are seekers because there's an adventure to it. You know, there are people today who... They, they take uh, time out of their lives and they go off to, to different places. I have uh, some of my Israeli friends who are young and um, former military. Uh, they tell me that, that many, most of those young Israelis who go through the military, once they get through their military service of three years, most of them take a year and they just go on a seeking adventure. They go to India, they go to South America, they go to maybe somewhere in Africa. They might go, you know, up into the north or something. But, but they're, they're on a quest, they're, they're on an adventure. They're kind of trying to find themselves. This is a common thing. There's the, the journey aspect. And again, it's kind of like, as long as you're on the journey, that's great, just don't arrive at any destination. But there's that that, that person who's just on a, they're on a continual journey. I, I know people who have been seeking for 50 years. It's like, hey, the truth isn't that hard to find. <laughs> you know, if you've been seeking 50 years, uh, you're probably looking in all the wrong places. Either that or you really don't want to find what might be there. And then there's also, with the seeker, there's that, there's that aspect of just the discovery of new things. And that's what Herodotus said. Herodotus said, I, just, I traveled because I just wanted to know new stuff. And, you know, I, I was referring earlier, I was quoting those um, different writers on Greek culture. But, you know, the New Testament tells us exactly this thing about the Greeks. We read in Acts chapter 17... 
The context is Paul on Mars Hill in Athens. And what we read there is that the people, the Athenians, they spent their time in nothing else but to tell her here's some new thing. They were always learning, it seems, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So that's one kind of seeker. A person who's just on a perpetual journey. But the truth of the matter is, they're, they're not really looking for the answer, are they? So when a person says, well, I'm seeking truth, the question is this, well, what's going to happen when you find it? And for many people, when they find what the truth is, they don't want that to be the truth. But you know, the true seeker, the genuine person who is looking for truth is the person who is going to follow the evidence wherever it may lead, even if it leads you to a crucified Savior. Even if it leads you to somebody who says, you've got to deny yourself. But you see, this is the problem. The problem is we don't necessarily want what the truth is going to tell us. But, but a true seeker does. And a true seeker is going to follow the evidence wherever it leads. And the true seeker is going to embrace it, even though it might not be what they had anticipated. There was a man, and I used to know his name, but I forgot it. He, he was known as the world's most notorious atheist. And he wrote a book um, some years ago before he died. He died a few years back, but he wrote a book before talking about how he had converted from atheism to believing in God. Now, there's no... There's no evidence that he ever actually became a, a Christian, although there's a possibility that he did because I know that there were some pretty influential uh, believers in, in his life, speaking into his life. But anyway, this is what he said. In defense of his conversion from atheism, he said, I always made it my aim to follow the evidence wherever it leads and this is where the evidence has led me. He, he was like the atheist of atheists. All of the modern day Dawkins and these people, they, they looked up to him as sort of their, their mentor and their, their you know, idol in many ways. And, and of course, when he renounced his atheism, he was criticized extremely by that atheistic community. He had lost his mind and you know, he, would be, he had become senile. But he did what a true seeker does. He followed the evidence where it led. And even when the evidence was not really what he was hoping for, he embraced it. You see, if, if you're really seeking the truth, you're going to end up right there face to face with Jesus Christ. That's where you're going to end up. And the question is, are you really seeking the truth? Are you willing to follow the evidence wherever it leads? And then are you willing to submit to it, even if it is something that you didn't really plan for, and it's not really something that you like necessarily? C.S. Lewis had a similar testimony. 
He described his own conversion from atheism to belief in God. He described himself as the most reluctant convert in England. He said he came kicking and screaming into the kingdom. He did not want that to be the truth, but the evidence was so overwhelming he couldn't deny it. And so he had to submit to it. And of course, in doing that, he would later write how that was the wisest and most wonderful decision he ever made. But, uh, but on the surface, it didn't necessarily seem that way because where the journey will take you if you're truly seeking truth is to a savior who died on a cross and says, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And so that's what Jesus is saying to the Greeks. And that's what he's saying to all seekers. If you want to know the truth, then follow me. And of course, he is the embodiment of truth. Next, in our next message, we're going to talk about that. Pilate asked the cynical question, what is truth? And we're going to find out the answer to that from, from Jesus himself. But that's, that's where we come as we consider Jesus and the seekers. And so, in closing, if you're seeking today, are you really seeking the truth? Or are you just on an adventure? Are you just on an endless journey? And at the end of the road, you're just going to say, well, you know, I searched and searched and searched. That's what I spent my life doing. Or are you going to follow the evidence? And even though it might lead you to the place that you didn't really want to come to, because it's true, you're going to embrace it. You're going to embrace this, this um, teaching that's so counterintuitive to our nature and to the culture, the teaching that says that we must set ourselves aside and give our lives entirely to God. It's not about our own personal self-improvement. It's not about uh, our own success and those kinds of things. If we're, if we're trying to come to Jesus for those reasons, we can't come. Not because he doesn't care about those things or he doesn't deal with those things, because he does. This is the interesting thing. Although we can't come to him on those grounds, of I want you know, some sort of self-betterment or improvement, what we find is that when we come to him on his grounds, that's what he does for us. We, we can't come to him and say, well, I'm just coming, you know, Jesus is just a means to an end. The end is I want a better life and Jesus is gonna get me there. Jesus says, no, you can't come. But when we come to Jesus for who he is, guess what he gives you? He gives you a better life. But he does it in the proper order so that the better life doesn't become a substitute for God and end up ruining our lives. He puts himself right there and he becomes the means through which all of that takes place. And so this is his word to the seeker. Deny yourself, take up the cross and follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also and if anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Wow, that's amazing. 
Do we want the honor of men or do we want the honor of God? Like I said, you know, you can be a searcher, you can be a seeker, you can be a wanderer, and people will honor you. People will maybe even write books about you. You can don a robe and go, you know, wandering around the Himalayas, and people will even wonder if maybe you're a god or something like that. They'll honor you. You can have that, or you can have the honor of the only God, the true God. And he honors those who honor his son. He honors those who receive his son. So Lord, help us not to be these kind of seekers that are just, we're in it for the adventure. It's all about the journey. We're just learning new things as we go. Lord, help us to seek you truly. And Lord, we know that you promise that when a person seeks you with all their heart, they will find you. That's what you said. And how we thank you that that is true. And Lord, it's true, obviously, for those who have yet to find you, but it's also true for us who have already found you. Lord, that there is a place to continue to seek you and to find you in ever new and greater ways. So help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.